0: DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Ignatius Press, presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer in residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift is one of the greatest satirical works ever written. Through the misadventures of Gulliver, his hopelessly modern protagonist, Swift exposes many of the follies of the English Enlightenment, from its worship of science to its neglect of traditional philosophy and theology. Jonathan Swift's satire on the threats posed by the Enlightenment and the embryonic spirit of secular fundamentalism makes Gulliver's Travels Priceless reading for today's Defenders of Tradition. We now begin our discussion on Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels.
1: Welcome, Joseph. It's good to be here.
0: Jonathan Swift.
1: Yes, indeed. Great writer, writing in a time of transformation in England, a bit earlier than Dickens and Jane Austen, because he's writing in the 18th century, during the time that's now called the Enlightenment. And of course the enlightenment is a supercilious name that it gave to itself you know the the, the presumption is of course that prior to this wonderful century everybody else was endarkened and superstitious which of course implicitly if not explicitly basically says that socrates aristotle plato homer Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas More, these great giants of of civilization in terms of philosophy and literature knew nothing. Because this is progressivism. So again, you know, we're not surprised that one thing that the Ignatius Critical Edition starts is to show us that previous ages were remarkably similar to our own. So uh, Mm -hmm. the 18th century is a time where the world believes it's progressed beyond the superstition of the past and it's now enlightened. And Jonathan Swift is basically lampooning that progressivism
0: he would be the last of the great renaissance writers do you think well
1: yeah of course you know with history you can always argue about when one time began another time ended but yes the early renaissance grew naturally out of the medieval it wasn't as if the high middle ages were times of barbarism on the contrary it was the times of the heights of scholastic philosophy st thomas aquinas etc and that transitioned naturally enough into the the renaissance but then of course the renaissance transitions from the the early renaissance to the late renaissance and by the late renaissance we have the rise of humanism in a sense that's becoming proto-relativist that if you want to understand humanity you study the human being not theology not god sort of marginalizing of Christianity. And then the the Enlightenment, so called, sort of grows out of the late Renaissance. So it is an evolutionary process. And Jonathan Swift probably technically speaking, being an eighteenth century writer is after even the late Renaissance. The Enlightenment really is a product of the late Renaissance. So it's a it's a continuum.
0: When we have Gulliver brought forth as quote unquote hero of this book when I think of heroes, I think of Odysseus from Homer's Odyssey, who is struggling through every trial to get home, to his home where he believes that it's the origin. Gulliver, he can't wait to get away from the family.
1: Well, absolutely, and in fact, you could see in some respects, Gulliver's Travels as an anti-Odyssey. In the Odyssey, the whole point of it is to get back to his wife and his son and his people. Order, which is home, and of course, home is very symbolic, and particularly symbolic for Christians, because ultimately for Christians, their the home is heaven. Now, of course, Odysseus was not a Christian, but you know there are many parallels between Homer's paganism and and Christianity, and this is not the place to discuss that. But mm-hmm. certainly, the desire to return home, and particularly to return home to wife and family and children and people, is a good thing. What Jonathan Swift seems to do is make his Odyssey the complete opposite: it's an escape from home, an escape from responsibilities, an escape from his family his family commitments and his children to go on this adventure where he can ultimately be reckless. And we need to remember one thing here, that there's a very important critical distance between Jonathan Swift as the author of the work and Gulliver as the protagonist. We're always tempted to assume, particularly in the first-person narrative, that the voice of the protagonist is the voice of the author. Now, that's often the case, but certainly not always the case. And in a very profound, uh, pronounced way in the Gulliver's Travels, it is emphatically not the case that what Jonathan Swift is doing is holding up uh, Gulliver as, as an example of the typical modern man who has no idea about the important things and is ultimately defined by his stupidity so that's an important thing for us to realize when we when we look at Gulliver's travels
0: exactly another nuanced example of what you just spoke of is when we spoke of, of Wuthering heights that Emily Bronte isn't necessarily Kathy
1: exactly in fact emily bronte is emphatically not Cathy, and as we discussed in that if you know if you want to try to find the authorial voice in one of the characters of that novel you know you have to look to nelly dean well in gulliver's travels jonathan swift's voice is is notably absent Uh, what he's doing is using gulliver to take us through various aspects and facets of modern life modern ideas particularly he's lampooning the progressive ideology that's turned its back on traditional Christianity. We need to remember, by the way, that Jonathan Swift is ordained a minister of the Church of England. So he's a committed practicing Christian an ordained Christian minister. And he's defending traditional Christian philosophy and a traditional Christian way of looking at life, and also a traditional Christian way of looking at Western civilization and its inheritance. He's defending that against the new progressives who really see that the future, the whole Baconian experiment, Francis Bacon, that the future really lies in physical sciences and not in the metaphysical sciences, not in philosophy and theology, and that science will liberate humanity from superstition, that humanity is moving forward into a golden age in the future well this is really the nonsense that Jonathan Swift is satirizing in Gulliver's Travels
0: this particular type of satire is one that well persons listening may not be familiar with Gulliver's Travels they probably have heard the tale they are familiar for example with The Wizard of Oz which was a a direct political satire it isn't just an adventure story of a young girl but it's adventure story of us trying to traverse through the politics of the time
1: Right, and and that's the whole point. We do need to see that Gulliver's Travels as a political work. It is profoundly a political and a philosophical work, and it's addressing the politics of its time. Now, one of the problems with satire is that satire is normally rooted in the topical, and the problem, Mm -hmm. of course, of rooting something in the topical, it ceases to be topical. So a lot of the things that Jonathan Swift is satirizing in Gulliver's Travels are things that are very much alive in the 18th century that perhaps we you know we need footnotes to understand now and you know, the Ignatius Critical Editions has new footnotes that enlighten us about those individual things but the general currents the general trends are nonetheless unchanged that somehow that science can liberate us so he lampoons mad scientists who have no connection with reality because they're completely and utterly fixated with their ideas with their inventions we have a society where the inventions become so powerful that they sort of supersede human beings themselves these scientists are so out of touch with reality that they have to be slapped around the face effectively to bring them back to reality and against that we see how the two extremes of a platonic idealism on the one hand with the whinims this sort of horse-like creatures and the sort of the seeing humanity as merely bestial a sort of cynical view with the yahoo's and of course both of those views are extremes that are not incarnational the christian view is that we're made in the image of god but that we're also concupiscent because of original sin but we're not only sinners and we're not only made in the image of God. So the the platonic extreme of the Huinims and the bestial extreme of the Yahoos are two extremes, again, that Jonathan Swift is lampooning, satirizing in Gulliver's Travels. So you see what he's doing with the cutting edge, the cutting knife of, of orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, cutting through the cant and idiocy of the intellectual fashions of his own day, many of which remain fashionable today, of course.
0: Which he did over 200 years ago.
1: Exactly
2: gulliver's travels by jonathan swift part four chapter seven the reader may be disposed to wonder how i could prevail on myself to give so free a representation of my own species among a race of mortals who are already too apt to convince the vilest opinion of humankind from the entire congruity betwixt me and their yahoos but i must freely confess that many virtues of those excellent quadrupeds placed in my opposite view to human corruptions had so far opened my eyes and enlarged my understanding that i began to view the actions and passions of man in a very different light and to think the honor of my own kind not worth managing which besides it was impossible for me to do before a person of so acute judgment as my master who daily convinced me of a thousand faults in myself whereof I had not the least perception before, and which with us would never be numbered even among the human infirmities. I had likewise learned from his example an utter detestation of all falsehood or disguise, and truth appeared so amiable to me that I determined upon sacrificing everything to it. Let me deal so candidly with the reader as to confess that there was yet a much stronger motive for the freedom I took in my representation of things, i had not been a year in this country before i contracted such a love and veneration for the inhabitants that i entered on a firm resolution never to return to humankind but to pass the rest of my life among these admirable winnems in the contemplation and practice of every virtue where i could have no example or incitement to vice but it was decreed by fortune my perpetual enemy that so great a felicity should not fall to my share however it is now some comfort to reflect that in what i said of my countrymen i extenuated their faults as much as i durst before so strict an examiner and upon every article gave as favorable a turn as the master would bear for indeed who is there alive that would not be swayed by this bypass and partiality to the place of his birth I have related the substance of several conversations I had with my master during the greatest part of the time I had the honor to be in his service, but have intended for brevity's sake omitted much more than here is set down. When I had answered all his questions, and his curiosity seemed to be fully satisfied, he sent for me one morning early, and, commanding me to sit down at some distance, an honor which he had never before conferred upon me, He said he had been very seriously considering my whole story, as far as it related both to myself and my country. That he looked upon us as sort of animals to whose share, by what accident he could not conjecture, some small pittance of reason had fallen, whereof we made no other use than by its assistance to aggravate our natural corruptions, and to acquire new ones which nature had not given us. That, we disarmed ourselves of the few abilities she had bestowed, had been very successful in multiplying our original wants, and seemed to spend our whole lives in vain endeavors to supply them by our own inventions. That, as to myself, it was manifested I had neither the strength or agility of a common yahoo.
0: There's nothing new under the sun, and that's why reading literature, especially good literature, allows for the development of that critical mind so that you can critically analyze not only something that you've read in the pages of a book, but you can begin to critically analyze what you're hearing in the voices of
1: politicians,
0: of scientists, of the world.
1: And to judge your present day through the eyes of every day. If you can see that the humanity has been addressing these same issues for centuries and centuries and centuries and come to certain conclusions about them for centuries and centuries and centuries, then you're not hoodwinked by the latest politician who tells you a bunch of lies, which is not new at all, because it's the same bunch of lies that was told you know, 50 years ago, 500 years ago, or the same philosophy that tells you that, you know, that man's human reason uh, is enough to liberate him from his lower appetites, or that science somehow will make everybody happy. I mean, all of these things have been addressed Throughout history, and the wealth of Western civilization allows us to draw upon that wisdom of Christendom to address the issues of today. So we we discussed we discussed Great Expectations by Dickens. We talked about how worldly riches do not bring happiness. In Gulliver's Travels, we're seeing how these worldly philosophies do not bring happiness. Scientism, the worship of science, does not bring happiness. You know, science in itself is a good thing. Science in itself is merely understanding the physical cosmos. All things that teach us something about the objective reality of God's creation are good. Science is good. Scientism is the worship of science, the idolizing of science as that which can bring us happiness in itself. And it's that scientism that's being lampooned by Jonathan Swift, you know, with his mad scientist, with his floating islands, with his premonition of bombs being dropped, even you know, which is two hundred years before it happened with the Blitz. You know, the wonders of science, the atom bomb, Blitzkrieg, poison gas. Of course, there are good things as well. But let's not forget that, you know, science is a two-edged sword. It can bring great evils and it can bring great benefits. And it's only by insisting that science is itself subject to sound ethics, to sound philosophy, to sound ultimately sound theology, that we ensure that we get a science which is beneficial and not a science which is self-destructive. And these are issues that, in the wake of the flourishing of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, that Jonathan Swift is addressing in *Gulliver's Travels.
0: Also, he brings out something that we struggle with all the time in our pride issues when he deals with the first two lands that he goes to, the land of the midgets, of course, the Lilliputians. We're more familiar with that particular story or the land of the giants than we are the other two parts of the story.
1: Yes, largely of course because they are quaint stories that can be turned into children's fairy stories. A giant man who's imprisoned and tied down by by tiny men and, and vice versa, he becomes a midget in the land of giants. It's the stuff of good fairy stories and there's nothing wrong with that, but of course that's not what swift is doing because swift's putting it in the context of this greater work where you know he's showing us about how size in itself is also an accidental quality it's not an essential quality one of the essays in the ignatius critical edition talks about how swift's imagination was informed by some of the scientific discoveries of his day such as the microscope Mm -hmm. you know because the microscope allowed us all of a sudden to see small things like i don't know mosquitoes much much bigger to look like sort of almost monstrous things so this understanding of okay well what happens if you know that uh, people become microscopic or people become macroscopic you know how does that make things seem and of course as regard the accidentals, where you become very powerful if you're much bigger than everybody else or you become very weak if you're much smaller than everybody else but the key issues are still issues of philosophy and ethics and right and wrong and doing the right thing or the wrong thing none of which is changed by mm-hmm. the actual physical magnitude or something. So again, Swift taking uh, some physical innovations and showing ultimately that metaphysics still trumps physics.
0: It is fascinating because as you go into the the political nature of it, you see the ramifications of it today and real experiences. I go back to the illustration of Frank L. Baum and what he did with The Wizard of Oz. And if anybody knows more than the movie, but read all of the books, that was political, what was happening in America. And it doesn't necessarily transcend in today's modern world. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's the political aspects that is lost and we're left with a fairy tale of the girl who is taken by the tornado. However, with Jonathan Swift, because of the virtue that is being brought forward through the political systems, that's why Gulliver's travel still
1: works. Yeah, absolutely. And the sort of political corruption he's satirizing is not based upon a specific political system, which I think Frank L. Baum's work was critiquing a certain system. Now, a certain system will change with time, but are human beings prone to corruption? Or, to quote Lord Acton's famous maxim, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely? Well, these are the sort of things that Jonathan Swift is dealing with. These are timeless political verities. What is good kingship what is good rulership what's a good politician ultimately a good politician is one governed by virtue who wants to serve not one governed by pride who wants to rule these are issues which we cannot hear often enough because we have to address questions of politics and questions of politicians all the time and we have to know what is a good politician if -hmm. we think a politician is just someone who's going to make us promises and break them as opposed to a politician who, in his very language, is one who is informed by Christian virtue, will not vote for things which every Christian conscience is going to be outraged by, merely to further his own political career. In other words, to put virtue uh, second to power, Mm -hmm. rather than putting power second to virtue. These are issues, of course, which are never go out of date, that are true of every single generation. This is what Jonathan Swift is addressing in Gulliver's Travels, and is one of the many aspects of that work, which remains as relevant today as it was then.
0: One of the big reasons why this is a work that can be mined on several different levels, not only just the political system and understanding how to look at it critically, and how we see it being played out in all the different isms in which it is elevated, but also in the decision and the attitude and the reflections of Gulliver himself. As he encounters each of these, his pride, his, dare I say that all of the cardinal sins come out at some point and are played out in the individual of Gulliver.
1: Absolutely. So much so that at the end of the work, we have this climactic reduction ad absurdum. The whole thing is reduced to the absurd situation where Gulliver actually prefers the company of his horses in his stable to that of his wife and children and family. Because his pride is such that he sees himself as sort of a platonic philosopher who lives in some sort of airy world of virtue above the real world of incarnated human beings. He is literally not of the real world anymore. Not in a healthy, otherworldly sense, but in a snobbish, prideful, I am too good for my smelly wife and smelly children. And, of course, we're meant to laugh at that situation, that Gulliver's travels have not led him to wisdom. The idea of a pilgrimage, of course, is that ultimately you're wiser at the end than you are at the beginning, so you, you get home, whether it's a pagan pilgrimage such as the Odyssey or, or a Christian pilgrimage such as Dante's Divine Comedy or the Chaucer's mm-hmm. Canterbury Tales. But in Gulliver's travels, the satire is that at the end of it, he is even more stupid than he was at the beginning.
0: That's what is wonderful about the novel if you have the critical edition and it helps you. Because in today's world, there is the tendency, without thinking critically, you're thinking somehow that Jonathan Swift is elevating Gulliver to a hero status.
1: Right. Gulliver's Travels is a perfect example of why the Ignatius Critical Edition is necessary because it is the sort of work that you can't read unaided over the distance of 200 years without some critical mechanism to help you understand it so of course the footnotes that bring out the contemporary relevance of things he's talking about the introduction which contextualizes you know, where it fits in who Jonathan Swift was why Jonathan Swift is emphatically not Gulliver and then a selection of critical essays coming at the work from various aspects you know the, the science that's happening at the time the philosophy is happening at the time Jonathan Swift is a Christian all of these together allow us to understand that work in its fullness without those things together it's very difficult perhaps impossible for a modern reader coming at it unaided to understand that work and it certainly is worth understanding so uh, it's a perfect example of why critical edition is needed
0: it's an important work to have at the college level if you're taking a literature course but i would think even more so within the home within the individual's life, because this goes to the whole, what a liberal education is. It's not about what we've made it today, where we think of liberals in the political sense. but a liberal education is what you attain when you enter into these works.
1: Right. Liberal in the sense of free and liberating, that ultimately the truth sets us free. The more that we exercise our reason, the closer we'll be to God. Into the paradox that faith and reason go together. So the great works are necessary for all to read at all times. Gulliver's Travels is one of those great works. Gulliver's Travels is a work that everyone should read and no one probably can read very easily without a critical edition, as we've said. Everybody, it's not just students at at university or at high school, everybody should be reading these works because, as I say, they are the pillars of the Western civilization which uh, our Catholic Church has given to us. And without Catholic Christian civilization, we'd have barbarism. Now whether it's the barbarism of a faithless pagan world or the sort of world that Islamic fundamentalists might want for us and the great defense against that is to make sure that all of us are well versed in what it means to be a beneficiary of Christian civilization and these great works of literature are some of the pillars of that great civilization all of us owe it to ourselves and to our children and to our families and to our wider culture so that we're better able to evangelize that culture to become well versed in these great works.
0: How would you encourage then the reader to approach Jonathan Swift?
1: The most important thing is to see Jonathan Swift as an important writer who stands firmly on the side of tradition, specifically Christian tradition, in the face of the encroachments of scientism, and again to reiterate, scientism is the idolatry of science in the sense that believing that science has all the answers that humanity needs. That's not scientific, it's scientism, it's a philosophy that worships science. So he stands firmly against scientism on the side of Christian tradition, he stands firmly on the side of the inheritance of Western civilization, the great books of the West, as opposed to new ideas. He's very suspicious of newfangled fashions and and progressivism. So in these things, he stands as a very important author. And we do need to read Gulliver's Travels within the context of a a critical edition because it's too difficult to understand without that supporting network of essays and footnotes. But on saying that, it's not so difficult that people can't understand it. It just means you need to have that support. So to buy the Ignatius Critical Edition is the best and probably the only way to fully appreciate this great work.
0: I think it makes it fun. It allows you to enter into the adventure with an understanding of the audience that Jonathan Swift was there. But once you have that, you are having as much fun as the community that read it originally.
1: Yeah, and we need to remember that as well, that if the work's understood properly, then it's, it is actually a great work of humor. It's meant to be funny. It's a comedy. It's a satire. It's a lampoon of, of lots of the nonsense ideas, many of which are very similar to the nonsense ideas held by... The inheritance of these ideas, 200 years on, so it's a it's a timeless response to timeless errors, basically. So, I agree. Great fun, good comedy, great sense of humor. And if we need a little bit of help to understand the humor, once we've got the humor, we, we can laugh along.
0: And we've spoken of this before, but I think it bears repeating. Often people will say to me, and I'm sure they say it to you, do you really read all those books? Do you really sit down as though somehow reading is something that you start to finish and it occupies your entire day? This is a great example and a great book where you would take it in sections maybe once or twice a week and allow yourself to digest the chapter you just entered into.
1: In an ideal world, we should all find an hour a day for prayer and an hour a day for reading good books. Now, you know, people might say I'm too busy for that, but I wonder how many people spend an hour a day idling in front of a TV watching nonsense, wasting their time doing other things. This is never a waste of time. This is a very good and appropriate use of our leisure time. So if we don't find time to pray, our spiritual life will suffer. If we don't find time to read, our cultural and intellectual life will suffer. And we need to be physically, intellectually, and spiritually healthy. And to neglect any of those three areas of our health is actually neglecting our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, quite frankly.
0: Mm. It's exercising the brain.
1: Exactly. Exercising the brain and in the process, teaching us about the reality of the world in which we live.
0: And how to live it out in Christian virtue.
1: Absolutely. And how Christian virtue sheds its light upon all the various issues and plots that these great works show to us
0: you've been listening to great works in western literature with joseph pierce to hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs visit discerninghearts.com this has been a production of discerning hearts i'm your host chris mcgregor We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.